Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 29. And our passage today will uh, start with our reading in verses 1 through 12 of that chapter. So you've got your Bible open, Genesis chapter 29. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pause at this point in our service this morning to come to You together. We read this story of long ago and think about what went on with Jacob and his family and his wrestlings with circumstance and with his uncle. And Father, we recognize we live in a very different time. We live in a very different world in so many ways, and yet this is Your Word, and it is abiding, and it is meant for us. And so I pray that this morning as we go into this story, as we enter into this tale of Jacob's life and and all that went on there, may we not just view it as uh, some tale, may we view it as not only even just history, but may we see what it is, your dealings with your people, and may we learn from this uh, section today of your word. So I pray that you would help us to set aside those things that uh, perhaps are uh, cluttering our minds right now, those distractions from what went on this week, maybe wonderful things that we would love to continue to think about for the next few minutes, or maybe terrible things that we would as soon forget, but they keep creeping in. Maybe worries about what will come, what will be, what might happen. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts even this morning 
to set those things aside and see what you have for us from your word. So we ask that you would minister to us in these next minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are dealing with a passage today that takes us in the life of Jacob through a number of uh, major events in his life, and each one in its way is um, not just interesting but curious and hard to understand at times, and, and uh, we could uh, focus on those and we could perhaps get lost in the details. I know it's easy to do that, but what I want us to think about as we're looking at this story of Jacob and his uh, dealings with his uncle and with his family, we want to see what God is doing in this narrative. We want to see God working in the life of Jacob and, and in his family, because Jacob goes into a far country, and we know he's running away from circumstances back home and a brother that has uh, sworn to kill him, and, and uh, circumstances, by the way, of his own doing. He's not the victim in this. <laughs> he had a whole lot to do with the problems he's running away from. Nevertheless, he leaves the promised land, and he goes into uh, a place that's unknown to him. Yes, he has family there, but he doesn't know this family. And we see that as he goes into this place, it's actually a little bit of a, a dark land. It's a dark region, and he encounters difficulties, and he encounters hardships. And as we go through this story, we can kind of feel what he feels, and we can sort of see what he sees in this. And so, as we're looking through this today, I, I want to ask you, have you ever, perhaps right now, you are entering into a dark path, a place, uh, a country, a land, a time in your life where there are more questions than answers? There's more gloom, perhaps, than light. And you wonder, what in the world is God doing? Or even worse, you wonder, is God doing anything at all? And so I don't know your circumstance. I know some of your circumstances, and, and I know that in various ways you can relate to uh, this episode, this time in Jacob's life, but I want you to think about that. You've been in places where it's like, a, it's like a, a dark path in a forest that you can't really clearly see what's ahead. You can't really see clearly what's behind, and, you, and you're a little antsy. You're a little afraid, maybe. What, what's in the woods? What is going to happen to me? Is God doing anything? Well, that's sort of what Jacob is up against as he enters into the land of Haran and and then we will see as he comes out. And the, the bottom line that I want us to draw from this is in the title itself that God's work is not hindered despite Jacob being in difficult circumstances, despite him being in a far country. God's work is not hindered. And so we're going to look at this section of Scripture today. But before we do, I want to notice that once again we see Isaac not really uh, living up to what he ought to do. He has not properly provided for his son. We have seen in other ways that Isaac seems to be a passive character. Not just passive in the story that Abraham is more important, Jacob is more important, and Isaac is kind of stuck in the middle, but here we see that his son has traveled to a far country. In fact, he's gone to see his uncle, Laban, and 
Laban has occurred in Genesis before. And actually, this land, this exact land has occurred in Genesis before. And we saw that actually when Abraham was old and, and about to die, he was concerned to take a wife for his son. And so he grabbed a servant, his senior most servant, and he commissioned him to go into the far country, find a wife from among his relatives there, and bring her back. And when he did so, he provisioned them with a whole uh, pile of wealth. It was a whole camel train that he didn't, wasn't on horseback or walking by himself or even just himself on a camel or something like that. He was an entire entourage, and this was merely the servant going to a far country to find a wife and bring her back. That's how Abraham took care of things. What has Isaac done? We saw already that the boys turned 40 and he hadn't yet found a wife for them. So they went and did it themselves, or at least Esau did. Jacob gets into his trouble, and so uh, now in, in conversation with his parents, Jacob is leaving, and he's by himself. The servant of his father, the one who went and found his mother, was an entire caravan all to himself. And here is Jacob. You get the picture with him with his walking stick going into a far country. Isaac has failed to provide once again. It's, it's a pretty... Um, inauspicious beginning already. And we see that as he gets into the land, as Jacob enters into the land, the passage we just read, we see that Laban tricks Jacob. Yes, the trickster got tricked. Jacob is the one who's been uh, uh, able to find a way to make situations and circumstances work out to his favor, even if he has to lie through his teeth, even if he has to trick uh, someone, even someone dear like his father, like his brother, doesn't matter, right? So the trickster himself, but now he meets the original trickster. He meets Laban himself, right? And so uh, we won't go through the passage we just read again, but you see that, that he travels to Haran, he goes and he sees these shepherds and he sees these flocks at the well. He reads the circumstance there. He finds out that these people actually know Laban, so he's come to the right place. And in fact, here comes Rachel, Laban's daughter now. Like, this is a timely moment. This is, this is a good way to begin, right? And he sees Rachel. And we, uh, you know, the, the romantic will look at that and say, wow, she's beautiful and he must have fallen for her immediately. But the text says, and he saw her father's sheep. <laughs> so you kind of wonder what really was. Uh, Jacob's motivation in this. I don't know that it's really clear, but it says that he sees both. And when that happens, um, there's this rock that had been covering the well. And normally the description is that the shepherds, uh, plural, would get together and roll this giant rock off of the well so that they could water the animals. And then when it was time, they, plural, would roll it back on. And so Jacob wants to show off apparently. And he, he goes out there and does it all by himself, rolls this big old rock off and, and waters uh, waters the animals and all this kind of stuff in a great demonstration of physical strength. And, uh, and so he, he, he does, does that, he waters the flock, and then he sees Rachel and he kisses Rachel and he somehow gets away with it. I don't know. I don't, the dad wasn't around, so right. Uh, but he gets away with it and, uh, and then he uh, meets Laban and his, uh, Laban's other daughter, not just Rachel, but Leah. So you've got these the cast of characters has already been set in this story, right? And then we pick up the story in verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel. He saw Rachel first, and he loved her, and he said, I will serve you, speaking to Laban, 
I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, uh, basically, uh, better you than anybody else, right? It's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. He so adores her, he so loves her that he agrees to this seven-year period. He's going to work for his uncle. The idea is sort of without pay because the pay is going to be that at the end of that, he gets to marry the younger sister, Rachel, right? So at the end of that time, though it seemed like a few days, he was, his anticipation was so great. He loved her. This is a great deal. We see there in verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. All right, I've done my time. I have served my seven years. It's time for me to have her as my wife. And so Laban agrees, and Laban throws this feast, a wedding feast, and, and, uh, and that's how it goes down. And, then, um, and so he gets to marry her, or so he thinks, because we read what actually transpired in verse 25, that actually on the night of the wedding, something had happened. And in the morning... Jacob finds out about it. Verse 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? And he had actually specified your younger daughter, Rachel. (laughs) I know the one that I said, right? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, and you You can detect irony in these words, at least for us, since we know the story. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Think of who he's talking to. (laughs) I don't know that Laban knows anything about this, though uh, the story says that that Jacob had filled him in on his life story. But here we have some irony that Jacob, the younger one, who had uh, had deceived his father to be considered to be treated as the older one. Now he comes to Laban and Laban says, well, it's not done like that in our country, pal. In our country, we, we deal with the older first, despite your own background. And so that's what, uh, uh, that's what Jacob encounters. He finds out in the next morning that actually he's married to Leah. He never made a deal for Leah. He loved Rachel and not Leah. Nevertheless, this is where he finds himself. And so Laban says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Right? So you can see that he's pulled a fast one, that Laban was trying to get two daughters married, and he was trying to make a buck on the side, and he learned how to do both. And so he he tricks, and he, instead of marrying off the younger daughter, the one that actually Jacob wanted, he arranges it so that Jacob secretly, unbeknownst to him, marries the older, the one he did not want. And then when Jacob uh, rightfully complains about it, Laban says, well, you know, in our culture, I couldn't marry her to you. It wouldn't be right to marry the younger one to you, so here's what we'll do. Uh, you can work for me another seven years, free labor, And in exchange, yeah, you can have the younger one. Yeah, I know we made the deal originally for her, but now really, really I mean it. You can have the younger. And so we see there in verse 28, Jacob considers that deal. 
Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And so now at least he does have Rachel as his wife, but he's also got Leah as his wife, Leah, the one he did not want. Uh, He considers Rachel to be beautiful. He considers Leah not to be. He doesn't love her. He loves Rachel. Leah is the outcast, though she is the first wife. So just a couple of observations before we move on from this. Uh, Laban, what does Laban get out of this deal? Laban, the dad, he gets two daughters married off. He was, he was hoping to do that. And 14 years of service out of the deal, free of charge. Great deal for Laban. What does Jacob get out of the deal? Well, Jacob gets one wife that he wanted. He gets one wife that he didn't want. He gets two servants and 14 years of labor with no pay. That's what Jacob gets out of the deal. And so Laban tricks the unsuspecting Jacob. That's the very beginning. That's that's the very lead up to his time in the land. He's already been there 14 years, at least by the time he completes the second set of of seven years for uh, the wife he wanted, Rachel. So Jacob's been tricked, and it doesn't look good. And so it kind of sets the tone. What can we expect? What good could come? What hope does Jacob have after such a bad start? That, that should be the question in our minds. Well, we move on to the second section here and deal with three different pieces under number two there that God works even in Haran, not just back in the land where he came from. God works even in Haran. In this next section, uh, verses 31 of 29 through about midway through chapter 30, uh, we see that God multiplies Jacob. And this perhaps is uh, one of the better known stories uh, in this section here, but God multiplies Jacob. And so, remember, he has a wife that he wants and that he loves, Rachel, and he has a wife that he didn't want that he got tricked into and he doesn't love, Leah. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Isn't that awful? Isn't that tragic? That she's she's so desirous to have the love of her husband that she's really gambling all on the birth of his child, thinking that now that I've given him a son, finally he will love me. And so uh, she conceives and bears Reuben, whose name means see, a son, because the Lord had looked on her affliction. And then she goes on, she has more children. Then Simeon is born. His name means heard, because the Lord has heard that she is hated. The first child didn't solve the problem. Second child, we'll see. Well, the third one is conceived and born. Levi, his name is attached because now surely her husband will finally be attached to her. Do you hear the desperation? This is an unloved wife. She knows it. And then finally conceives and bears Judah, whose name means praise, because this time she will praise the Lord. And so you see here that Leah starts off, and Leah has uh, born a number of children. The first four are hers. And, and so uh, on, on and on we see this continue. Look at, look at uh, verse 30. So Leah has born, the unloved wife has born all of these children. When Rachel saw, remember Rachel, the preferred one, when she saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. 
And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Now, we've seen patriarchs whose wives are barren before. His own father, Isaac. His mom had been barren for a number of years. And Isaac had prayed. And then Abraham, his wife had been barren. And after a few false starts and a couple of uh, uh, things that we've talked about, he prayed and the Lord opened her wound. But that is not what Jacob does. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He responds, not as he ought to. And then she said, here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. And so that's exactly what happens. And he goes into her and she conceives and she bears a son. And on and on we have this trading back and forth of Jacob. And the, the servants enter into the picture so that, so that he basically has these four wives who are all competing to have more children. Uh, and particularly you have Leah and Rachel in this competition. And at one point it gets so bad that Rachel, uh, her son brings these uh, no, Leah's son brings these mandrakes, finds these, a root that grows in that region. It's thought to be an aphrodisiac. And, and Rachel basically rents out her husband to Leah so she can have the mandrakes. She hires him out. And so you see that this is just twisted and dark. You see that it's all the while, his family is growing, but you see the sinful, selfish motives wrapped up in all of it on everybody's part. And so this all goes on until finally ten sons and one daughter are born. But Rachel, the one who, whom he loves and the one who so badly wants children, she has none. She has no children. And so we read, in verse 22, after all of this, after ten sons and a daughter are born, we read there in verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. She wants another son. But finally, she has had one. And, and look at this. Look at, at who is the subject of these verbs. God remembered Rachel. It was God who did the remembering. God listened to her. And it was God who opened her womb. Despite the conniving, despite the, the white magic, uh, some scholars call it, with her trying to use the mandrakes to try and uh, make this whole thing work, Decide, despite everything that is going on in this family, ultimately it is God who opens the womb. It is God who remembers her. It is God who gives her a son, and that son is Joseph. And so she is uh, excited about that, but she does want some more. So a couple of uh, points here before we move on. The Lord is the one who opens and closes wombs. The women scheme and manipulate, but it's the Lord who gives children. Notice also that God had compassion on Leah, the hated one. She ends up actually bearing six of the twelve sons, and the four oldest are from Leah. God has compassion 
on her. We see also in this section that strife and dysfunction are everywhere in this passage. Sometimes people ask, why doesn't Genesis or why doesn't the law or why doesn't the Old Testament, why isn't it more specific, explicit in its condemnation of polygamy? Well, this family's drama right here is all the condemnation of polygamy that you need. You can see the misery on everyone's part in this section right here. And finally, I want to comment that this, this section of the, the, all these children being born, this is the heart of this entire cycle. If you remember why Jacob went into the land, on one hand it was to escape his brother, but on the other hand it was also to find a wife because he needs to have children. And so we see that that is going on. He's found the wife, uh, wives and servants, and that's all messed up. But then now we see the birth of uh, all of these children. This is the, the, the heart of this whole cycle right now. That as sinful and confused and dysfunctional as this whole storyline is, look at what God has done to this point. In just these few verses and under less than ideal circumstances, the family that will become the tribes of Israel has been given birth right here in these weird circumstances. Levi, who will become the tribe of Levi. Reuben, who will become the tribe of Reuben, and on and on. This is the nation's origin story right here. And so we see that God multiplies Jacob. And then we move on to the next section. We see that God prospers Jacob. God prospers Jacob. Look at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, as soon as... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. And so he wants to go. It's time to leave. He wants to go back to his land. He didn't move here permanently. He was just sojourning, and so it's time to go back. He wants to, but Laban wants him to stay. turns out that Jacob has been a huge blessing to Laban, not only 14 years of free labor, but extremely profitable labor that Laban's flocks and herds have multiplied under Jacob's care, that Laban has grown rich during this time of having Jacob serve him. And so he, of course, wants him to stay, and he says, name your wage. Uh, Name your wages, and I will give it. But we see in verse 31, he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So he's, he's looking at the flocks and the herds, and he's saying all the speckled ones, the ones that are the less uh, appealing, the less prized, I'll take those. Like, I'll take the dregs. I'll take... I'll take uh, the ones that, that uh, perhaps you might consider culling or that are not as valuable to you. They're not as beautiful. They're not as pristine. Uh, they're not as a purebred. I'll take all the ones that you don't want. I'll take those to be my wages. Look at verse 33. Remember who's saying this. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. So, he claims for himself the speckled and the spotted. 
And then he says, my honesty will answer for me, says Jacob. To this point, Jacob has not been known for his honesty. So maybe, maybe the Lord is working in his heart. We will see. Look at verse 35. But that day, so he agrees to it, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. So step one for Laban is to remove all the existing uh, wages that might have been Jacob's otherwise. He cleans out the herd, removes everyone that would have belonged to Jacob, and removes it, gives it into the care of his sons, and sends them three days off. So initially, he starts off underhanded once again. Jacob starts with nothing. And the story continues, and you're familiar with this story, and I'm not really going to analyze it, but, but uh, Jacob has an idea in mind, and what he does is he takes these uh, these sticks of wood, and he strips off some of the bark so that you've got a, a light and dark kind of combo in these sticks, and he'll, he'll put them there in, in front of the water troughs or by the, behind the water troughs because as the animals come in to water, that's where they breed. And so it says that, you know, they, they look at, uh, he wants certain of the animals to see this speckled and spotted structure while they're mating, and he wants others not to. And I don't really want to go into detail about all that. There are some commentators that talk about uh, how that works genetically, that you've got um, purebred stock is not as strong, not as healthy, not as vigorous as that which has been uh, crossbred. And so um, he's actually, Jacob has actually been very smart and said, yeah, I'll take the ones that are ugly, but they're strong and they're healthy and they multiply like crazy. I'll take all those that you don't want. You can have all the pretty ones. And that's what ends up happening. And you see Jacob kind of uh, pursuing that. But but uh, whatever, I don't understand all of that stuff. I know some of you do, perhaps, and uh, whatnot. But we see the point down in verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Did we see that this idea that Jacob has is used to multiply? Remember, he started from nothing. And after a few generations of uh, these animals, he's become wealthy. And so God has been at work prospering Jacob in Haran. So that he who had nothing, he who had been uh, almost an indentured servant for 14 years, now is very wealthy. His wealth has increased greatly, had large flocks. He's got all kinds of servants. He's got camels. He's got donkeys. He's become rich from this deal. God has prospered Jacob. God has been at work even in Haran. And then thirdly, we see that not only has he multiplied Jacob, not only has he prospered Jacob in this foreign land, but now he summons Jacob to come back to uh, his own land. And so uh, in chapter 31 there, we see that Jacob uh, figures out that uh, Laban no longer looks at him with uh, favor, that actually it's becoming quite obvious that Laban preferred the situation when Laban got to be the one in charge and Jacob was the one always getting defeated. And he was always uh, got the short end of the stick. But now uh, Jacob has turned it around and Laban is seeing that Jacob's flocks are just growing and he's getting wealthier all the time. And somehow these flocks are producing for Jacob like crazy. And so he no longer looks on him with favor. And so 
We read in verse 3 of chapter 31, at that time, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so, we have already the statement that from God Himself, that God wants Him to go. God wants Him to return back to the land. And we haven't heard from the Lord, really. In this section, we heard back in chapter 28, remember the, the great ladder, Jacob's ladder there, where, where uh, the Lord repeated to Jacob the promises, essentially, that had been made already by God to Abraham and Isaac. But then, very importantly, the Lord had added to him, to Jacob, in verse 15 of that chapter, He said, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And so though Jacob has experienced joys, no doubt, as he's married and he has children, and yet you can see by looking at his family that he's experienced great heartache as well. You can see by looking at his work situation that now he has turned out rich, but that's after a long time of being abused and manipulated and taken advantage of and impoverished himself. But God had promised He would bring him back, and, and not only has God not left him, but He's been at work this whole time, that God has accomplished great things. If you, if you think about it, you've been traveling through the life of Jacob, and, and we, we've gone through the experiences he's seen, and see what the outcome is. Look at the outcome. God has blessed him in num- a number of ways, though it wasn't enjoyable to him at the time. And look at verse 12 and 13. This is the angel of God speaking to him. And he said, verse 12, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Lest Jacob think that he has figured out how to manipulate his uncle. Lest he think that it's been uh, some chance that he has grown rich, lest he think that these blessings that he's seen in his life, though they have been, uh, they've come at a great cost in his, in his own life, in his own experience, lest he think that that was because of him. The Lord points out, the flocks multiplied the way you said, because I wanted it that way, says the Lord. God was at work. Just as God opens the womb for Leah and Rachel, God opens the womb even for animals. He gets to determine who is going to be born. And so God has been at work, has blessed him greatly. And so uh, he's told to leave. And of course, there's a time when uh, Laban's away uh, shearing sheep. So Laban's very busy. Uh, all the farmers, all the, all the shepherds, everybody's busy. And Jacob decides now's the time. They're, uh, I, I'm no longer in favor here. I've got my wealth. The Lord has called me to go home. I'm going to go home. And so he is going to take off and and go home. And we've seen change in his life. We've seen him grow. We've seen that actually uh, he, he said, my honesty, my integrity will defend me in regard to the, the sheep and the goats, in regard to his business dealings with Laban. And we've seen that actually it's been the Lord multiplying him. He has had integrity, that Jacob has actually grown some honesty in his life. The Lord has been changing him. The Lord has been working, but we see that not everyone in his household has been sanctified. 
Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and so they're leaving, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. She takes these idols, apparently they were of particular value, not just religious value, but probably monetary value as well. She takes them. We find out that it's unbeknownst to Jacob. He had nothing to do with it, but uh, nevertheless, we have Rachel stealing these. And of course, Laban, when he finds out about all this, is, is furious, and he, he uh, gives chase. He pursues them. But as he's doing so, as he's thinking about what he's going to do, he took his kinsmen, he's following after, and he's, he's going a long way. This isn't just chasing him, you know, out the back door. He's traveling day after day and week after week, and he's going to retrieve what he sees as his. Verse 24 of chapter 31, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, God is cautioning Laban. You are chasing Jacob down, and you're going to uh, tell him a thing or two, and you're going to set things aright. But I'm warning you, says God, you be careful how you speak to Jacob. You be careful not to contradict Jacob. You be careful where you stand in regard to your relationship with Jacob. Well, we know why. Because Jacob is God's man. God has promised that He's going to bless Jacob in all these ways, and He's done so. And now, with Laban furious and chasing, God steps in and says, you be careful. God cautions him. And so, uh, he, he enters uh, into a conversation with them. There's a little bit uh, of caution there on Laban's part, though not much. But Jacob, uh, Laban comes and he chews him out. Why'd you do this? Why'd you leave? Why'd you take my, uh, my, wife, or my, my daughters away? You took my grandkids away. All these flocks and herds, yeah, they, they were mine. And here you are leaving with them. You're taking all my stuff. Why are you doing this? And on top of it, you stole my family gods. Right? He throws that in there. Well, Jacob is going to answer regarding those other things. He understands and explains to Laban that this was a tough situation. Uh, for example, in verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, that's why I did these things, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. But I didn't know anything about the gods, he says. So if you find the gods that person shall not live. The person who stole those gods, I didn't know anything about it, that person shall die. And of course, we know in verse 34 and 35, uh, we already know that it was Rachel who did it. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. So she's in her tent. She's got her camel's saddle there. She puts the gods underneath that and the saddle on top, and she sits on the saddle. And Laban felt all around the tent but did not find them. He was looking everywhere. And he, just, he didn't just walk in and look around and say, well, I checked the shelf and the table, and I didn't see him. He's feeling everywhere. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. And that's a, a very odd detail. In, in a story of very odd details. That is a very odd detail, but I think this is what the author wants us to understand, that Rachel herself doesn't mean anything good by stealing these idols. 
She probably wants to sell them. Perhaps she still worships them. Uh, maybe she just wants to have this um, something that was valuable to her father or whatever. She doesn't mean anything good. She, she has no godly motives, I don't think, behind her actions. But we see here is Laban's gods, his pagan gods, his idols, the competitors, as it were, to Yahweh, God of Jacob. Laban's gods are being defiled and polluted. A woman in her menstruation is sitting upon them. And so, that's a picture, I think, to us that this is what has happened to these gods. The God of Jacob was at work in in Jacob's life despite Jacob being out of the promised land. But as soon as Laban's gods, the idols, are taken out of their land, they're shown to be worse than impotent. They can be rendered powerless and utterly useless by something as simple as a woman's menstruation. That's the value of these gods. That's the, the potency, the power of these gods. They are nothing. And so God has summoned Jacob back into the land and in the process has shown a, a victory over these pagan gods along the way. So we see that God has been at work. That Though Jacob has gone off into this land not knowing what he would find, he found a bunch of bad things, but God has blessed him enormously as well and brought him back. So we come to point number three and we see here that Laban, Laban, who is the original trickster, Laban, who is the one who could teach Jacob a thing or two about how to trick people and lie to them, that this Laban who took advantage of Jacob from the moment Jacob got into the land and he's tricked him in every way he can and he's manipulated him in every way he can and he's benefited from Jacob in every way he can, this, this Laban who is the master manipulator and has seemingly had Jacob as his, as his target of manipulation all this time, finally we see that Laban repents. He, well, I should say he relents. He doesn't repent per se uh, before God, but he relents in his opposition to Jacob. We see in verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. You see, there's a change in the power dynamic in the relationship. Laban's been in charge and Jacob's been having to figure out how to live in the midst of it, but now Jacob has become angry. He has berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? For you've felt through all my goods, and what have you found for, uh, what have you found of all your household goods? See it here before my, uh, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that we may Uh, they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. 
Jacob has finally had enough, and there's a change in the power dynamic that Laban relents to him. Laban comes to realize that Jacob is not just this youngish man. Remember, he was 40 or older when he arrived. But this youngish man who's single and who had nothing, who was penniless, who didn't have a family, who showed up and who, who needed a job, a place to sleep, Jacob is no longer that man. He has grown into become God's man. God has multiplied him. God has made him wealthy. God has placed his own blessing upon him. And you see a change that now, now when Jacob blows up at Laban, Laban takes it because they're equals. They're on equal footing. And so we see the response here by Laban. Though he fusses for a little bit in verse 43, complaining about it, yet nevertheless, verse 44, come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And so they set up these pillars, they set up these pile of stones, and they say, this is this is the boundary between us, and may these stones watch out over us. May they watch our behavior. May they, may they make sure that you don't come against me to do harm or, or the other way around. Uh, may this be a witness. May God be a witness between the two of us. And so both men swear, and we see that uh, true to form Laban uh, swears by whatever gods. The God, uh, he swears by Yahweh, and he swears by other gods as well, mixing them together. But Jacob, for his part, has grown. And what does Jacob swear by? He swears by the fear of his father Isaac. That's what Jacob in this chapter refers to Yahweh as. He swears not by these other gods. He swears by Yahweh himself. Remember what we knew about Jacob spiritually going into the land. We, we had almost no indication about his spiritual condition. Until that moment with the latter. That's the first real inkling of him coming alive spiritually, of God working with him. And yet here, by the end, he is confident in his Lord, and he swears in this covenant by the fear of his father Isaac. And so he offers a sacrifice, and they have a feast together, indicating that they're at peace. And the next day, Laban departs. That's the story. That's the cycle of, of Jacob and Laban and the rest of his family. And so, look at the implications. And think about what God has done during this dark time. What God has done in this, in this difficult time in his life, and it's a significant time, 20 years. For a 40-year-old man, this is a third of his life now he's been in Haran. What has God done? It's been it's been an up and down time. What has God done? Well, Jacob went into Haran empty-handed, and he came out decades later with his, his son, the, the great-great-grandfather of kings, and the Messiah himself at his side. Judah, amongst his other children, at his side. What has God accomplished? More than he will uh, recognize in his lifetime. But God, in multiplying him and making him rich, he chose the context of strife and opposition, a time of difficulty, a dark place that, in, in retrospect, he probably would not choose to go back there. He wouldn't sign up to experience that again, and yet it was exactly in that context of difficulty and hardship that would be the crucible to bring about the line who would bring us the Messiah. So what do we learn about Laban? Well, the trickster uncle is tamed. 
And he comes to recognize that Jacob is no longer a person to take advantage of, but rather a force to be reckoned with. And so he seeks a covenant with Jacob. He's afraid enough of Jacob that he seeks a covenant with him. That's what's happened with Laban. What about wealth? What has happened regarding wealth for Jacob? Jacob and his family have become well provided for under Jacob's skillful management and God's abundant blessing. As has happened several times with his family before, if we think about with Abraham and Isaac and their history, God has made Jacob wealthy at the expense of the foreign nations around him. He has gone into a dark place and he has grown wealthier there in the midst of the opposition. What about his character? What, about, uh, what are the implications for Jacob's character? Well, the deceiver and the heel grabber has come to show actual integrity. That the first time we read through and Jacob says, my integrity will argue for me, my honesty will defend me, we don't have a lot of confidence because he hasn't shown integrity. He hasn't shown honesty. He's a shyster. And yet in this time, we see that actually he does show some integrity. He does so show some honesty here. And so we see him beginning to grow in his character. What about, his, what about regarding Jacob spiritually? Well, the man who had shown no signs of spiritual life prior to this trip, in fact, he was always coming up with strategies to get ahead, to do it his own way, regardless of what rules he might have to break. He has now come to recognize that the only reason he's been able to overcome the schemes of Laban is by the hand and the blessing of the Lord. He has come to see and understand that truth, that he owes what he has to God. He has grown spiritually. He, he, he makes a covenant in the name of Yahweh. He has taken Yahweh not just as his father's God, but as his own. Well, what do we learn about Jacob regarding his family? Well, the lone sojourner has been provided with 12 children. And one of those children, Levi, will be the father of the priestly line, the tribe of Levi. Another of those children, Joseph, will become the means of protecting and providing for the entire family to be able to survive a famine so bad it would drive them from the land into Egypt. That Joseph, that Joseph that we're going to read about so much later, he's been born. That Joseph has been given to Jacob during his time in Haran. God is doing things in seed form in Haran that will bear massive fruit. And another of those children will be the most important one of all. Judah will be the father of kings. Levi is the father of the priestly line, and Judah is the father of kings. And one of those kings will be David to whom God will promise that He will give an eternal throne and dominion to one of His offspring. And that offspring is Jesus, who saves His people from their sins. All that in seed form is accomplished in the dark place, in the place of difficulty. And so I asked you to think about your own circumstance when we started. And how does your circumstance take on new light in light of what God has done here in the life of Jacob? So a couple points of application very quickly. Don't despair when circumstances are hard and even people are against you. 
God works in those very circumstances to accomplish His good purposes in you and for you. Don't despair of hard times. Look what God did in the life of Jacob during hard times. Secondly, don't despair when you can't see God working. How often does that cause us to struggle? I don't see what God is doing. Don't despair when you can't see God working. The Bible everywhere teaches us that God is always at work behind the scenes. Always at work behind the scenes. Think of 2 Kings chapter 6. Maybe go and read that this afternoon, that the, that the people are surrounded by an overwhelming army. They're going to be crushed. They're going to be destroyed. And Elisha's servant panics. And what does Elisha say to him? Do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And the servant didn't know it. Folks, you and I are the servant in that spot, and we're just overwhelmed, tempted to be overwhelmed by circumstances, maybe horrific circumstances. But we don't get to peel back. We have to do so with the eyes of faith and see that God is for us and He is working behind the scenes regardless of what we can see. So often we, we think, well, I can't see God working, so He's not. Do you think I can encompass? Do you think you can encompass all that God is doing with your eyes? With your brain? None of us can. God is at work in ways accomplishing things in seed form and bearing fruit that we don't have any idea of. This is the way God works on behalf of His family. This is the way God works on behalf of His people. And so for some of you, the application is to become one of His people by faith in Christ. You've heard this story. You've, you, maybe, maybe it seems like ancient history or some fairy tale or, or something like that. I want to assure you that it is a true story, and more to the point, it is a true story that tells us about the God who saves and how He works with His people. And you can come to know Him by faith in Christ, by trusting in Jesus and what He has done, this one who is, who is in seed form, as it were, even in the goings-on in Haran, but the one who himself will be born in Bethlehem as a little boy and will live a life under the law, persecuted, enduring hardship, being sinned against, but himself always righteous and sinless. And who will go to the cross to pay penalty for sin? Not, not his own, but mine to take upon himself that burden, to take upon himself that punishment from God so that, so that in Jesus himself being punished, all of the wrath of God for my sin is poured out and the righteousness of Christ is credited to me, put on my account. So that by faith in him alone, I didn't do something, I didn't accomplish something. By trusting in him, I have peace with God. I become one of his children. And I can trust that God is at work even though I don't see it. And so if I could have the men who are going to serve uh, communion come forward, please. We come to the point in our service where uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a celebration 
It is a reminder. It points us to what Christ has done. And this is a very special time. It's not only a reminder, like the reminder uh, that you might set on your phone that, uh, you know, it's such a, you know, I've got a meeting upcoming or something like that. This is, this is not only a reminder. This is a special ministry of the Lord on our behalf that He commanded us to participate in. And when we do so, Christians, we are, we are grown spiritually in this time as we look to Jesus, our Savior, casting our eyes on Him and what He's done. And so these, uh, these elements that we're going to partake of, these, uh, these represent Jesus, our Lord, who gave His life on the cross for us to redeem us, spilling His blood at the expense of His own life. His body was broken for us. We, we celebrate that, not because, not because it's beautiful in itself, but because it's beautiful in what it accomplishes, the redemption of sinners like me. And so this, this celebration is for those who know Christ, those who have looked to Him and have found Him to be the perfect Savior, those who have looked away from themselves, looked to Jesus, and, and found their sins punished in Him and found their righteousness coming from Him to them and credited to them. That's who this is for. So if that's not you, just watch the elements go by and think about what we've said and come talk to me afterwards, please. You can come to know Christ yourself. You can have your sins taken care of. You can have righteousness credited to you, and you can have access to God as well peace with Him. So let these things pass if you're, if you're not a believer Christian. As these elements are being passed, the, this is a time for us to think about our sin in a context. Our sin makes us guilty and we need a Savior. And here we celebrate our Savior. We don't, we don't ignore our sin. The Christian doesn't ignore his sin. He owns it, and he confesses it, and he realizes the weight of it, and he realizes that Jesus is a greater Savior than I am a sinner. And so, I look to my sin, and I confess it, and I find it forgiven in Christ, and I celebrate what He has done. I rejoice in Jesus, my Savior. And so, as we come to uh, the elements today, we first take up the bread. So, if you men would take that up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. So as we pass these elements around, if you're a Christian, take that bread, hold on to it. We we will partake of it later on, but spend a moment in quiet reflection, confessing your sin, owning that that you, you must have a Savior. And, and confessing that and then realizing as you hold that bread that you have a Savior in Jesus, our Lord, and ask Him for forgiveness, and He forgives sins. Let's pray. Father, we worship You through Jesus, our Lord. We are only able to do so because of Jesus, our Lord, and the price that He has paid that He gave His own body broken on the cross, gave up his own life to pay a penalty for sin, my sin. 
So even as we pass these elements, we worship you and we confess our sins and we find forgiveness in Jesus, our Savior. And we pray in his name, amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, if we could take up the cup, please. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As we pass around the cup, spend time in reflection that Jesus has accomplished all righteousness for our salvation. And he agrees to give that to us by faith. That is called the new covenant, which he is instituting here 
when he says, this is the new cup of the covenant, or the cup of the new covenant in my blood. What a Savior we have. Rejoice in the fact that we have life before God because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the cup, we are amazed that Jesus, the Lord of glory, would take on our mortal frame, would deal with temptation, would live in a world that sinned against Him constantly, that would nevertheless obey You in the midst of temptation, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of all of His life. He walked obediently to You, and that He took upon Himself the penalty for us having not walked obediently before You. And He willingly undertook to give us that forgiveness and righteousness by faith in Him, that we get to have forgiveness from Him and righteousness credited to us because of our Savior. And He instituted that new covenant in this cup. And so we celebrate this cup with great joy because of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Amen? Christian, if you have come here today, you, you truly believe in Christ. You've come here today in repentance of your sins. You, then I, I get to encourage you that by virtue of Christ's death, you are forgiven of your sins. By virtue of what He has accomplished, you have right standing before God. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, I would encourage you a minute. You can go ahead and sit down. Um, I would encourage you that uh, this is the final uh, or the first week of the month, and so we take our benevolence offering. Uh, there's a box in the back. There's a tray in the, in the uh, foyer that you can uh, give in there, um, and that is to take care of uh, physical needs that folks have. And so I would encourage you to that end. You can take care of that after this is over. Uh, as well, I wanted to encourage uh, you about church membership, that we, uh, we do have a church membership here, and um, actually I have some people today, uh, I will, when I read their names, I will ask them to raise their hands, um, but uh, people who have decided to join us in fellowship as members here at Parkside, uh, first of all, Dale and Kim Young, if you guys would raise your hands, please, thank you, and then um, uh, Kara Pollocky, who is not here, she was unable to be here today, she, she wasn't well, but she's watching on the camera and probably raising her hand now. You can't really see that. The other, uh, Aaliyah Bullock has become a member, praise God. And then Ryan and Abby Danielson over here. So, uh, yeah, praise God for new members. And so um, I would encourage you that if, if that's something you want to pursue, you want to join with us in uh, membership here at Parkside, you can grab a, an agreement to fellowship in the back there at the uh, Welcome Center. And um, so what, what a joy. What a joy for us to have a Savior who takes upon Himself our redemption. And by His work, we get to be forgiven. We get to have peace with God. We get to have God as our Father, and we get to be His children. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we rejoice in Your great grace and mercy towards us. We are so grateful for this salvation that we have in Christ that would, we, would, we would not have thought to accomplish. We would not have been able to had we thought it, and yet Jesus did it, accomplished it all, and He gives it to us by faith. And so we celebrate in Jesus, our, our Savior, and we give you glory and worship today as well, and pray that you would send us out in joy and in rest and knowing that Jesus has accomplished all of our redemption. We, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, find these uh, folks who have um, just join the fellowship and, and uh, shake their hands, give them a hug, and, uh, and welcome them, and consider membership for yourself. There will be a family up front who would love to pray with you, and I'll be up here as well. If you have questions, if you have comments, just want to uh, talk with me about the sermon or anything uh, else, I would love to do that. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.